So Ephesians 6, starting verse 1, this is the word of our Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, as we consider uh, the place of children, the children of believers in the church of Jesus Christ, that your spirit be present with us, and that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things concerning you and your faithfulness to your covenant in your word this morning. For asking Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now today we'll, Lord willing, baptize uh, Malachi James Hunter. And on the occasion of a, a covenant baptism such as today, and notice I'm using the term covenant baptism, not infant baptism, and I have a reason for that. We don't necessarily believe in infant baptism in the sense that we don't believe in baptizing every kid of every person. We believe in covenant baptism, that is the baptism of those who have already been united by the children of the baptism of those children whose parents have been united to Christ by faith. But on the occasion of these baptisms, our minds often are drawn to the blessing of children, the raising of children, and the place of children in our lives. And since our minds are there already, we might as well take advantage of this situation and talk about the place of children in our lives and particularly in the life of our church and what is our duty toward the children of the church. It is virtually universal in Christianity that a church must minister to the children that belong to the parents of the church. And why is that? Why is that this virtually universal um, desire or practice. I think uh, uh, if we think of any church that we had experience with, every one of them had some sort of ministry to children. And why is that? Is that because the children are the future? Well, that's part of it. That we want to invest in the next generation of believers. Psalm 78 tells us to grab the things that we receive from those that went before us and hand it to those that come after us. Is it because uh, ministering to children bring families in? I hope not. I hope that's not our desire just as a ploy, or not a ploy, but a strategy to grow the church. Is it because they're cute? Not always, and rarely in baptism. Now, Malachi has some potential by looking at his siblings, but he's not there yet as we baptize him uh, today. So why is it that we minister to the children of believers? Why is it that this, you have this virtually universal practice in the church of Jesus Christ? Well, I think the main reason that there is this universal practice is because the Lord Jesus Christ himself tells us that the children of believers are part of the body of Jesus Christ. That the children of believers are members of the visible church. Now, the visible church is just a way, a term to speak about the church of those who profess to believe in Christ and 
their children. The, in essence, is a, the visible church is a snapshot in history of those that profess faith in Christ and their children represented by local churches. So we are a representation of the visible church of Jesus Christ and the children of believers are members of the visible church of Jesus Christ. The uh, our covenant children don't become members of this church upon profession of faith when they are admitted to the table. They become members of this church at their baptism. They are engrafted into Christ, into the body of Christ at their baptism. Now, this truth goes often unnoticed because it may not fit in some systems of doctrine. Even though they have some churches have a robust ministry to the children of believers, they don't have the doctrine to back up that uh, practice. But it's, it's really almost impossible to get away from the practice. As a matter of fact, the practice of ministering to children of believers in, church, in the church of Jesus Christ is often much closer to the biblical truth of the place of children in church than what the actual churches believe concerning children themselves. Virtually every Christian parent teaches their children to pray. Virtually every Christian parent teaches their children to worship God, to sing hymns. And often that happens without any thought about the relationship of children, of Christians to God. And sometimes often uh, happens, uh, sometimes often, that's bad English, isn't it? Uh, And often it also happens when the parents deny that there is any relationship between their Children who do not have a profession of faith yet and God. And yet they say, this is, you obey me because God tells you to obey me. God is your father in heaven. And if, if there's no special issue between our children and God, we can't make those statements. And we can't encourage those little heathens, because that's how we have to think of them, to pray to God. Because God does not hear the prayer of the heathen. Again, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Really, the question I want to answer today is, why is it? Why do we minister to the children of believers? And the answer to this question also helps us understand why we baptize them. Because the reason is the same. And we minister to the children of believers because they are part of the body of Christ. They are members of the church of Jesus Christ. Paul addresses them as such. So he's writing Ephesians. And in verse 1, Paul identifies, in Ephesians 1, verse 1, Paul identifies the recipients of that letter. And if you were to look at verse 1, 1, he says, to the saints that are in Ephesus. That's the audience that he's writing to, the saints, the holy ones, the hagioi. Those have been set apart for Christ. And then he addresses the saints in the epistle. He addresses several segments of the church as being part of those saints of verse 1. So in chapter 5, verse 22, he addresses the wives of the local church as the saints. Then later on in the same chapter, he addresses the husbands as the saints of that local congregation. And when he gets to chapter 6, verse 1, he addresses another segment of the saints. That is the children 
of those parents in the congregation. He addresses the parents in verse 4. He addresses the slaves, uh, the equivalent of uh, employees today in verse 5. He addresses the masters or the equivalent of employers in verse 9. These are all segments of the audience that Paul is addressing in verse 1 of chapter 1, the saints of the church in Ephesus. And Paul does the same thing in Colossians, where he addresses all the saints in Colossae, then he addresses the children as being part of the saints. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And it is not a stretch at all to reason this way in Ephesians and in Colossians, because Paul elsewhere explicitly called the children of believer holy. That's just another translation of the word saints. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we could start reading at verse 12, but we won't. 12 through 14, Paul says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. And Paul's argument is that the 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 children of at least one believing parent is holy, is set apart. It is in a special relationship to God. The, the, the use of holy and unclean that Paul has in verses 12 to 14 of 1 Corinthians 7 harkens back to Numbers and to Leviticus, where the, what was holy or were those things that belonged to the Lord. And it was what was unclean of those things that did not belong to the Lord. Here, the children are classified as in the holy category, not because of their own faith, but because of the faith of at least one believing parent. And Paul's instructions, what he writes in Ephesians and Colossians, just and in 1 Corinthians, just follow logically from Jesus' practice. At least twice during his earthly ministry, our Lord spoke of the place of children of believers in the kingdom of heaven. One, when he was in Capernaum. And in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6, our Lord says this concerning the place of children of believers in the kingdom of God. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called the little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Surely I say to you, Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one one little child like this in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. And you say, but a pastor is explicitly there says these are believing children. That's fine. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, again in, ver- in chapter 19, now Jesus is not in Capernaum, but in Perea. And it's important, those locations are important, and I'll tell you in just a moment. He says this, in Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15, he says, Then the little children were brought to him, that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. 
But Jesus said, let the, children, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hand on them and departed from there. The important thing is what Luke says in the very parallel account. Uh, in, what Luke says in telling us the same story, but from his perspective, in Luke 18, verse 15 and 16, it says this. He says, then they were also brought... He doesn't use the word for children here. He says they also brought infants to them. Luke describes those children of Matthew 19 as infants that are brought to him. Now the question remains, how do we know that these were children of believers? It doesn't specifically says that that you know the members of uh, the Bible Presbyterian Church in Capernaum brought their children to be blessed by Jesus. It doesn't quite say that, but when you look at the context, you, we see that that's the case. So how do we know that these are children of believers by looking at the stated purpose of Jesus's ministry? Remember Jesus' interaction with the Syrophoenician woman in Decapolis. This is happening in Matthew 15, prior to Matthew 18 and 19. This woman comes to him and says, My daughter is sick, come and heal her. Remember what was Jesus' answers to the, the, to the woman? That he did not come for those that are out there. He came to minister only to the people of Israel. Specifically in verse 15 of Matthew, verse 24 of Matthew 15, Jesus says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So there must be a difference uh, here, a contrast between this woman who wanted to bring her child to Jesus. And Jesus says, no, don't come. Eventually he does heal the child, but first says, no, don't come. And these other children that are being brought to Jesus and the disciples say, don't let them come. And Jesus says, stop, they are to come to me. There's a big change in attitude in Jesus's mind and we know he's perfect so nothing is in contradiction to one another that's to be some sort of explanation we also know that these are children of believers by looking at the location at which these things took place i said remember that both was capernaum and perea these are both jewish territories these are where the Jewish people lived. Jesus had been to the Decapolis, uh, which was a, a Gentile territory, and said he came to the house of Israel. So these children brought to him were part of God's covenant people. And if they were males, they had been identified as such, as being part of God's covenant people by circumcision. But also by noticing the faith of the parents that bring them. They were brought to him. These, these children didn't come to Jesus. They were brought to him, particularly as Luke elucidates the situation. These were infants. They were brought to Jesus. They did not come on their own. And though not explicitly stated, it is extremely likely that it was their parents who brought them, especially their mothers, who brought them to be blessed by Jesus. And these people then were believing people. And we can conclude fairly certainly that these children that were brought to Jesus, Jesus blessed, these are members of my church or children of believers. Now Jesus and subsequently Paul acted this way because they understood the promises of God in the new covenant. They didn't make this up. They didn't start something new that was completely foreign to the people to whom they were ministering. 
Jesus came to fulfill the promises of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. Including his people's children. And Paul made sure the church didn't forget that when he wrote his epistles. At this point you might say, okay, we've been talking about this covenant, we've been talking about these promises. Can you point me to some of these promises? And at, at this point then, in answer to that question, I could read to you the entirety of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And my, my sermons are going to be already long enough, so we're not going to do that. I'm going to point you to just some passages in those books. But those three prophets are the prophets of the new covenant. And they talk about those promises there. But let me give you a little sample. For example, in Isaiah 59, verses 20 through 21, the, the, the Lord speaking through the prophet says, The Redeemer will come to Zion... And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord, As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them, my spirit who is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of, the, of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants. God promises. His covenant is not made only with adults, believing people, but also with their children, and that the words and the Spirit of God will not going to depart from the mouths of their descendants and their descendants. descendants. Jeremiah 31, the great New Covenant chapter, the, 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 the chapter quoted in Hebrews 8, the longest continuing quotation of the Old Testament in the New Testament, and applying this passage to all children of Abraham by faith, Jeremiah 31 starts by saying, At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. And you say, but he's talking to Israel here. We're not Israel, the church. Well, let me, and we can talk about that at a different time. I'm not going to take time to discuss this now. But if you are not a member of Israel, you're not saved. And if that shocks you, come and see me afterwards. But if you're not a member of Israel, you're not saved. If you're a member of Israel, do not take the Lord's Supper because the new covenant in the blood of Jesus, the new covenant in which the bread and the wine signify was made with the house of Israel. And you're not a member by faith of the house of Israel, then the new covenant, the only new covenant that's found in the Bible, is not for you. Jeremiah says further in chapter 32, he says... They shall be my people, and I'll be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. I have a few more passages in Ezekiel, but I'm going to skip them. It is in this mindset that when Peter preaches the gospel in Acts chapter 2, and the people are... Uh, convicted of their sins, and they ask, what must we do to be saved? Peter says, repent and be baptized, for these promises are for you. But he doesn't stop there. He says, these promises of the gospel are for you and for your children. So the children of God's people are in covenantal union with Christ and are part of His body, the church. They are members of the church. And this, the effect of this doctrine on Paul was this. He says, your children are covenantly united to Christ. 
So raise them in the gospel. Raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord because they belong to God himself. And that is why when parents bring their children to be baptized here, pretty soon Adam and Betsy will be asked these questions. They must making the, make the following promises. I'll ask them, and they must promise that with all their hearts. Will you declare that you understand the responsibilities laid upon you by the Holy Spirit and the gift of this child? And do you promise to raise him in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? It's a commitment that every parent baptizing their children make. We ask them, do you promise to do all in your power to show and declare the truth to your son and to pray faithfully to him for him so that he learns to fear, love, and obey God? And we ask them, do you further promise to faithfully testify to him of your only reliance on Christ and to encourage your child to seek remission and forgiveness of sins through his blood alone by faith? This doctrine of covenant faithfulness teaches us that we raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord because they are in a specialship with the Lord marked by their baptism. So why do we baptize them? Because it makes for a nice photo op? Not necessarily. We baptize them because the Bible tells us so. Let me ask you this. Does the Bible say anywhere that babies must not be baptized? Is there a passage in the Bible that says babies must not be baptized? Well, some point to Acts as proof of that babies should not be baptized. Particularly Acts chapter 2 verse 38, when Peter says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they say, See, you must repent and then be baptized. Babies can't repent. Which we could argue, we have an argument on that alone, right? Since uh, John the Baptist recognized Jesus in the womb of Elizabeth, and Jeremiah was called from the womb of his mom to be a prophet. But notice that in the context of Peter's statement, the men who were present in Jerusalem were the one asking. They're asking, what should we here do to be saved? And Peter says, you who are here, then repent and be baptized. That is the category of people who Peter is talking to, unbaptized adults who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. The truth is, people of God, the New Testament doesn't forbid the baptizing of babies. It doesn't command it either, but it doesn't forbid. You're not going to find a passage in the New Testament that says you're forbidden to baptize your babies. But even though the Bible doesn't explicitly command it, it does firmly so when you consider the Bible as a whole. The issue people have with infant baptism is when they only have half of the Bible. But when you consider the Bible as a whole, it becomes clear that children are part of the church of Jesus Christ and should receive the sign that unites them to Christ. The Bible teaches that the children of believers should be baptized by equating the significance of baptism to the significance of circumcision in the Old Testament. It is uncontestable that children were part of the church in the Old Testament. It is, the circumcision by itself shows that. That there was a right, there was an administrator to male children as representative of all children. That they, by, by having that right administered, meant that they now were considered part of the people of God. 
that they now could come and offer sacrifices in the temple, that they now could come and participate in the Passover. Without it, they couldn't. With it, they could. They were explicitly part of the people of God. It can't be denied. You have to do a lot of gymnastics to exclude children from the church in the Old Testament. And it's appropriate to call the church in the Old Testament because the Bible does that. Uh, uh, Stephen does that in Acts chapter 7. The book of Hebrews does that through chapters 8 through 10. Uh, it refers to the church in the Old Testament. Paul does that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But if you're not convinced, I mean, let me read one passage, one passage alone, from the same chapter in Joel that Peter quotes to the people in the Pentecostal sermon of Acts chapter 2. This is a description of Joel of the people of God gathered together. He says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, call the church together. By the way, the Hebrew word for assembly here is the equivalent Hebrew uh, word for the Greek word church. And then Joel continues, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing baby, babes, all as part of the assembly of God who's going to worship God. Before Christ's work and final revelation, the sign that the children were part of the visible church was circumcision. You could read in chapter 17 of Genesis, where God tells Abraham that he himself has to be circumcised as a sign that he belongs to God. Every male in his household must be circumcised, regardless of age, as a sign that Abraham belongs to God. And then he specifically says, every male eight days or older must be circumcised as a sign that he belongs to God. Abraham, to, to God. And that's a serious, a serious sign, a serious ritual that needs to take place. The point that Moses was almost killed by God himself when he didn't circumcise his, his sons. I don't know if you remember the story in, Gen, in Exodus chapter 4 where Zipporah saw that the Lord was going to come mo, to kill Moses because the, their two children weren't uh, circumcised. And Zipporah grabbed a piece of, grabbed a piece, a piece of rock and circumcised the, the kids it just gives you service just to think about right there on the spot and through the forest cans at the feet of Moses. And said, you're a man of blood. You're unfaithful to the Lord. You did not circumcise your own children. So this is, this is a big deal. And throughout the Old Testament, for 2,000 years, children were identified with the Lord through circumcision. And when we come to the New Testament, that doesn't stop. The New Testament links the significance of circumcision with that of baptism. The New Testament tells us that baptism means the same thing as circumcision. And if you have a Bible or a device, I would love to turn to this, these next two passages with me because they are of utmost importance to what I'm saying here. One is Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Paul's discussing justification by faith alone. And this is why this is so significant. Paul's discussing that you one is justified before God by the grace of God through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Nothing else can be added. And he starts there in verse 9 of chapter 4 of Romans by saying, that this, Does this blessedness, there's the blessing of justification by faith, then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? 
while he was, uncircum- was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be f- the father of all who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who do not only are of circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while he still uncircumcised. So right here, we are given a more specific explanation of what circumcision signified during the nearly 2,000 years in which it functioned as a sign of God's covenant. Paul says that circumcision was, was a sign and a seal of the righteousness of the faith which Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Paul's point is this. Paul's point here is that Abraham believed and was justified first, and then was circumcised as a sign of his personal salvation, his personal justification before God. Now remember that scene in Genesis chapter 15 where Abraham has to walk between uh, the parts of the animals. Oh, not Abraham. That God walks between the parts of the animals saying, the, calling upon himself, the curse of death. He feels Abraham. Right there it says that Abraham believed God and that was accounted to him for righteousness. And it's not till chapter 17 of Genesis that Abraham and his household is circumcised. And in Paul's mind, in Romans 4, which is being infallibly guided by the Holy Spirit, circumcision signified and sealed personal salvation. Justification by faith alone. The imputation of the righteousness of Christ, the believing sinner by faith. In other words, according to Romans 4, circumcision signifies exactly the same thing as baptism does. Personal salvation by faith. That's what Paul says here in Romans 4. Circumcision was not a sign of genealogical connection with the people of Israel. Circumcision was not an ethnic identity marker or a boundary marker. It was not just a sign of land promises. It was for 2,000 years the sign and seal of justification by faith, the sign and seal of personal salvation. And this sign of personal salvation, this sign of justification by faith, was given not just to believing adults, but also to all of the males in the household of that male adult, regardless of age. Something that Paul says signifies salvation was given to every male adult, regardless of age. And God specifically commands the sign of personal justification to be given to the male infants eight days or older. And the point is that I'm trying to make is this, if I haven't been clear. Circumcision is just as associated with faith and personal salvation as baptism. And yet, it was given to infants who neither understood what was happening to them, nor could they make a profession of faith or show any signs of repentance of regeneration. Do you get that? And why? Why were they supposed to do that? Because God commanded the parents to do so. 
God commanded this to be done. And the Abrahamic covenant is an unchangeable and everlasting covenant. In Hebrews chapter 6, the Holy Spirit tells us that God swore by Himself that this covenant would be an everlasting covenant. And we see then that spiritual circumcision, we see that circumcision is today accomplished, accomplished by baptism. The second pastor said, I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And as you turn there, I, I, I acknowledge this is not talking about physical circumcision. This is not talking about physical baptism. It's talking about the work of the Spirit in our hearts. Spiritual circumcision and spiritual baptism. But we have to acknowledge that the physical, the waters of baptism, relate to what baptism signifies spiritually. So if there's a connection between spiritual circumcision and spiritual baptism, we should expect the same connection between physical circumcision and physical baptism. Look what Paul says in Colossians 2 verses 11 through 13. In Him, speaking of Christ, you were also circumcised. So, you all who believe in Jesus have been circumcised. That's the main verb of this, this paragraph. With the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. And then our translation is not helpful here, because our translation says, Thou buried with Him in baptism. Buried here is a participle, means it's not a main verb. It describes a main verb. It describes the verb circumcised. And we could more accurately translate it by here, instead of just buried with him in baptism, by, uh, as by being buried with him in baptism. How were you spiritually circumcised? By being spiritually buried with Christ in baptism. Your spiritual circumcision is accomplished by your spiritual baptism. It is then reasonable and required logically to conclude then that you're temporally and physically circumcised by being baptized with the waters of baptism. In the Old Testament, one becomes a child of Abraham according to the covenant of God that God made with him through circumcision. In the New Testament, one becomes a child of Abraham through baptism. Paul tells us that in Galatians chapter 6, verses 26 to 29, where he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. How are you a seed of Abraham? In a physical outward way? By being baptized in Christ. How were you a seed of Abraham in the Old Testament? By being circumcised. Circumcision and baptism mean essentially the same thing. Therefore, the same types of people that should have been circumcised in the Old Testament are also eligible for baptism under the teaching of the New Testament. Believers' circumcision or believers' baptism for those who are coming from outside the visible church Covenantal circumcision or covenantal baptism for those coming from inside the visible church on the strength of the parents' profession of faith. Both of them covenantal rights. Now, what is the impact of all this in our lives? What is the impact that the children of believers are in a special relationship with God, are engrafted into the visible body of Christ, are 
under the umbrella of the church of Jesus Christ. What is the impact on us? The impact is this. We raise our children in a nurture and admonition of the Lord. Like Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 verse 4. Paul says, bring them up. Bring them up. The idea of, is of nourishment, of feeding them. There's also an element of tenderness, which is in contrast with the provoke in the beginning of Ephesians 6, 4. We bring them up, especially the fathers. Bring the children up, nourish them, provide for them, grow, feed them. And here's not physical food. Feed them spiritually that they might grow in the Lord. We bring them up in the training of the Lord. And our translation says, bring them up in the training of the Lord. We train our children in the Lord. And this primarily refers to what we do to our children. It includes several things. It includes spanking. But if spanking is the only thing you do to train your children, you're failing them. Spanking is a necessary, essential tool, but that's all that you do? You're failing them. It involves structure. It involves modeling. Involves training in righteousness. And the Lord gets to tell us how to do that because it is training in the Lord. We bring them up, we nurse them in the admonition of the Lord. That has to do with what we say to them, how we teach them. What is said and what's done must match in order not to provoke the children to wrath and for the parents not to be the object of the displeasure of God. And God tells us to do that. And how do we admonish them? How do we raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? By constantly keeping the Word of God in front of us and in front of them. Deuteronomy 6 is clear that throughout their day, throughout our day, the Word of God has to be before them. And the parent who knows that the parent who knows that his child, that her child, is covenantly united to Christ will keep the gospel ever before the child. Because he knows, she knows, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And if a parent, if a parent claims the doctrine of God's covenant faithfulness to, as the reason for complacency in raising their child, that parent is twice the child of hell and is failing their children. Let me end with this. Uh, William Hendrickson we had a few more pages to go, but we're going to stop here. Uh, William, William Hendrickson, in his commentary on Ephesians, says, says this, and is a very profound statement. He says, The very heart of Christian nurture is this, to bring the heart of the child to the heart of his Savior. And that's what we do in parenting. We bring the heart of the child to the heart of his Savior, and vice versa. And that, in some ways, starts for Malachi today, as we baptize him. Parents, your duty before God is to do whatever you can to influence your children in the gospel. That's your duty. One of the dumbest things that a parent can say or believe is that he is supposed to let his children decide for themselves who they are and what they believe. Because if you do that, you will be the only person in the world doing that to your children. Everything else in their lives in the world is trying to influence your children, to tell them who they are and what they should do. It is your job, parents, to tell your children, Mom and I are going to heaven and you're coming with us. No choice. 
by now you, you may be saying, I messed up. I blew it. I feel sorry for my children. Every time I study this, I just I feel sorry for my children. Um, quite a bit. <laughs> um, anyway, by, my, by now you may be saying, I've, I have failed miserably. And if you're there... If that's who you are, I messed up, I blew it, I, I betrayed my Lord, I betrayed my children. If that's how you feel, you're depressed about that, you're down, you're convicted, I want you to rejoice. Because that's a good place for you to be, to recognize that if that's what you did, that, you, that to be in that place is good for you. That's the blessed place to be in order to receive the grace of God. Parroting, like everything else in life, can only be done by losing your life in Jesus Christ. Jesus says that it is in our weakness that His grace is magnified and we are made strong. So if you know you have failed miserably as a parent, there's only one thing for you to do. Repent. Repent, open your eyes to the grace of God and nurture and admonish your children the best you can at whatever stage they are. Because the very heart of Christian nurture is this. To bring the heart of the child to the heart of the Savior. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you're God who works through families. And that you're God to us and to our children. Enable us to be faithful to your calling as parents, as church. To raise our children in your nurture and admonition. We pray, Father, that the gospel will be always present in our homes. And in our church. And that our children will come to know Jesus as their own personal Savior. For asking Jesus' name, amen.